All right, well, we are going through the Beatitudes this summer. We're actually in the last two weeks here of our series on the Beatitudes, and so we're going to be jumping in this morning in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be looking at one of the, uh, the second-to-last Beatitudes. I'm going to read you from the start so we have the context going into it, uh, but then we're going to look at, uh, at Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. We're going to be looking at peacemakers today. So if you have your Bible with you, you can open it up to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, if you don't have your Bible or you're having trouble finding it, that's okay because we'll have the text on the screens next to me so you can follow along there. All right, guys. So once again, we are going to be in Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to start at the top in verse 1. Try to get the full context before we jump into it. All right, well, if we're all there or close to being there, we're going to go ahead and read uh, from the start of the Beatitudes this morning, looking at Matthew chapter 5 and starting verse 1. It says, When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called sons of God. So today we're taking the Beatitudes one by one uh, over the course of this series, and today we're looking at that one in verse 9 where we finish today, which is, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. As I've said before, the Beatitudes is describing for us, um, at the same time, characteristics that should be true of every single person who calls himself a Christian, a Christ follower, disciple, right? Uh, these are, this is a, a, a comprehensive list that should describe your life, not in a la carte, that you can just pick one or two from, okay? So these are all characteristics that should describe all Christians. Uh, but even beyond that, it is something that, and, and it's logical, that should describe the whole community of believers, right? Because if you have an entire you know, society, culture of people who are living out these beatitudes, these characteristics in their life, well, then you're going to have a community that is poor in spirit. You're going to have a community of people who are humble. You're going to have a community of people who are merciful, who are hungering for righteousness, who are pure in heart. You're going to have a community of people who are peacemakers. And wherever you have this, being lived out first in individual lives and then uh, in the life of the community itself, of an entire uh, corporate body of people uh, uh, living out the, these characteristics in their life, well, then that can have a powerful impact on the world, particularly this one that we're looking at today, right? Blessed are the peacemakers. And you see that played out in the book of Acts. If you go to the book of Acts, you'll, you'll get to read about some of the uh, purest expressions of Christianity that we've ever seen in the history of the world. Especially in Acts chapter 2, you'll get to see one of these descriptions. Uh, in Acts chapter 2, 
the Holy Spirit comes down to the apostles, and Peter begins to preach a sermon uh, during the festival of Pentecost. So there's a lot of people in Jerusalem. He preaches the first Christian sermon to them, and it says that thousands of people are saved that day. And so now you have a Christian community. And it describes that Christian community. And like I said, it's one of the purest descriptions we, we, or, or examples we have of what a Christian community looks like. And one of the things that it describes is that the, this community was held in favor by all the people. And so what you see here is that even for those who are still Jews, even for those who, uh, well, they were all Jews, but even for those Jews who had not converted to Christianity, you know, who weren't on board with them yet, they all saw them and still liked what they saw. They held them in favor. What they saw was attractive to them, though they weren't quite on board yet. And you see this in a few other places in Acts, too, where there's a movement of God, the gospel expands, people are saved, and it says that, and they were held in favor by the people around them, right? And so here's something that we see, is that the Beatitudes describe a community, but the Beatitudes also describe an attractive community. Because if this is what Christian community is supposed to look like, and we see that being lived out in a, in a story example in Acts, what we see is that if we as a community, as a church, and uh, a, a group of, of Christian believers can start to live out these characteristics in our life and in our community, well, then not only will, will that be honoring God, right, and, and obeying his, his, what he expects for our lives, but it will present an attractive picture, an attractive portrait to the world around us. People will see our community, and it'll make them intrigued and attracted to what makes our community different. And I think that perhaps none of the other parables, or not parables, sorry, beatitudes, and perhaps none of the other beatitudes uh, exemplify the potential attractiveness of the Christian community like the one we have here today, which is the peacemakers. So let's look at a couple of things as we consider this beatitude for our lives. First of all, what is a peacemaker? And then we're going to look at, uh, you know, sort of the elephant in the room when it comes to this one, which is how do you be a peacemaker in a divided world? And then lastly, why it is so important that you be a peacemaker. All right. So we're going to ask the questions, what is a peacemaker? How does a peacemaker live in a divided world? And then finish off with why you must be a peacemaker. So let's jump in. So, so what is it? Like I said, you know, I've said this a couple weeks before already, but even though on the surface these appear to be very simple, right, and, and it's all written in, in plain language, Jesus isn't using any highly technical terms here, but I just want us to be careful that we don't come to any of these Beatitudes like we did last week with Pure in Heart or any of the others and start to read in our assumptions of what Jesus meant onto it rather than really understanding what did Jesus mean where he talked about the humble hungering and thirsting for righteousness. What did Jesus mean where he said, blessed are the pure in heart, right? And same thing with this one here. What did Jesus mean where he talks about peacemakers? Because we might get the wrong idea if we just bring in our assumptions that have been given to us by our culture or our family or whatever else and then lay it on top of Jesus's words. Does that make sense? So let's make sure that we understand what Jesus is saying. So what does he mean where he says peacemakers? I'm going to give you this point and then explain it out. So being a peacemaker is attempting to overcome the enmity between us and other people through acts of love. That is what being a peacemaker means. Being a peacemaker is attempting to overcome the enmity between us and other people, the division between us and other people, through acts of love. Now, here's how we, where we see that. 
where we see Jesus fleshing out for us what being a peacemaker means. Because if you look a little bit further ahead in Matthew chapter 5, if you, get, if you go down to you know, somewhere around verses like 43 to, to 47 or so, you'll see Jesus pick up this term again about what it means uh, or what it looks like to be the sons of God. Because what he says here in this beatitude is that if you're a peacemaker, you'd be called a son of God, right? That is the corresponding reward with it. And then a little bit later, he, he once again starts talking about what it means to live like a son of God. And so that connection in Jesus' terms is kind of fleshing out for us and shedding some light on what Jesus meant the first time when he talked about being a, a peacemaker. Because he talks about being a son of God in both. And so let me just draw out a couple of things by bringing some context in here for what Jesus means. The first one, the first thing that Jesus means when he talks about being a peacemaker, which makes you a son of God, is that you are someone who will love and pray for your enemy. Being a peacemaker means that you will be someone who loves, who will love and pray for your enemy. Listen to what Jesus said in verse 43. He said, you have heard it that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But then in 44, he says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. You see, once, once again there, this idea of sons of God or children of God. And so what does it mean to be children of God, sons of God, peacemakers? To be the kind of people who does not just love our friends, the, who does not just love those who love us, but to be the kind of people who will love and then pray for their enemies. And so what that means, practically speaking, is, and so love means to... to um, to give them acts of kindness, right, acts of generosity, uh, extending a, a hand of fellowship to them, though they do not deserve it, right? And so love means doing, you know, kindness, good things for them in action. But what does it mean to pray for our enemies, uh, though they are enemies? What does it mean to pray for those who are in opposition to us, so there is division between us and them? Well, it might mean a couple of different things, because number one, your enemy might be someone who is, who is your enemy or opposed to you, because they are not a Christian. Maybe they're not so much opposed to you as they are opposed to Christ. And so in that case, the content of our prayers is praying for their salvation. Once again, if we take the context of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount into account, and later on in chapter 6, whenever Jesus teaches us how we ought to pray, what's one of the first things that he says? We're to pray for God's kingdom to come on this earth as it is in heaven. And here's the thing, whenever God's kingdom comes and spreads on this earth, you know what that means? That means salvations. That means people who were once God's enemies, right? And then maybe by extension, our enemy. That means people who were once God's enemies being made his children through uh, accepting the gospel, being saved, following Christ in discipleship, and then entering into his kingdom, right? So when we pray for God's kingdom to come, what we're praying for is, is for the salvation of the world around us. And for those who do not know Christ yet, to know him, to experience his forgiveness, his grace, his love relationship, and so on. And so we ought to be, whenever we pray for our enemies, we ought to be praying for their salvation. Maybe there's times whenever you have a division between you and somebody else, but they're already a Christian. You're a Christian, there's a Christian. And so in that case, you, you, because there's division between you and them, it doesn't mean that you need to assume, well, I guess they're not a believer, <laughs> right? Don't do that. What you need to be praying for then instead is for their sanctification, or maybe for yours as well, right? Looking at yourself, saying, okay, have I contributed to this division between me and my brother or sister? And if you haven't, well, then in, 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 in your best evaluation, the fault really does lie more on their side, 
Well, then in that case, you need to be praying for their sanctification and God to be opening up their heart and for God to be giving you opportunities to continue building a bridge, all right? So that's the first thing that being a peacemaker means. It means loving and praying for your enemies. The second thing, uh, just very practical, that it means for being a peacemaker is making small gestures of peace. In verse 47, once again in in chapter 5, so this is right after the Beatitudes, in verse 47, Jesus says, And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same. So this is right after him talking about uh, not just loving your neighbor, but also your enemy. And then he even goes so far as to say, and you know what? You need to be the kind of person who doesn't only extend kind greetings to your neighbor and those who are like you, but, but also to your enemy as well, to those who don't like you. He says, if you only greet and you only do kind things for those that only like you in return already, he says, how are you any different from the world around you? And so peacemaking means bridge building. All as a warm greeting between us and that person. So we make small gestures of peace. We love and we pray for those that there's division between us. And the third thing is this. The third one is that we long for peace. We long for peace. Longing, desiring, right? We long for peace. Listen to what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, verse 18. He said, in Romans 12, 18, he said, If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Paul's acknowledging something here that we're going to dig into more in a second, which is that peacemaking doesn't always mean peace achieving. Right? That's an important distinction. Being a peacemaker, right, and taking those small gestures and steps doesn't necessarily always mean peace achieving. Because that's what Paul's getting at here, where he says, you know, if you see it in italics in your mind, if possible, right? Live at peace. He says, as long as it depends on you, whatever is in your power, he says, live at peace. So what he's saying here is that there might be some times where it's not possible. But what does that mean, just for our purposes now, before we get into that, that side of it? What, he, what that means is, and the implication of this, is that, is that even whenever it's impossible, even whenever there are great barriers or obstacles and divisions, and we have done everything that, that we can, we, as much as uh, relies in, or, or as much as lies in our camp of responsibility, we have tried to live out. Even still, we should be longing for peace. And you know what? Some <laughs> that might not seem like a big deal, but sometimes that is the hardest part of peacemaking, isn't it? Whenever there's a division between us and someone else, you know, it, it's easy to to fake a a warm greeting sometimes. Right? Where whenever you see them in the grocery store or at the coffee shop, it's easy to pretend like you didn't see them there. You run into them at a wedding, whatever else. It's easy to, to, to fake those things. But to tr- truly long for it in your heart, to want peace between you and, and, and someone else, right? actually sometimes that is the biggest obstacle. That is the hardest part to to get started, to get moving on, to overcome, before we can get to the practical details of it. So don't think, okay, well, that's such a small thing there, right? Just longing for peace. No. What Paul is telling us is that we should be working, we should be sacrificing, and even whenever all those attempts have failed, we should still be longing for peace. 
even whenever that peace has not come. So, loving and praying for our enemies, making small gestures of peace when we can, and even whenever all of our options and attempts have been exhausted, we continue to long for, the, for peace with, with those others. Let me just ask you this before I move on. Can you imagine the impact that we would have in the world today if Christians would start living as peacemakers? Can you imagine the impact that we would have? Do you think that, you know what, let's not even talk about the church at large. Let's just look at our own lives as individuals. Whenever you look at your own life as an individual, have you been living as a peacemaker? Have you been longing for peace between you and maybe, and whether it's friends, maybe it's family members, whether, who, whoever it might be, whether it's another believer or whether it's someone who is not a Christian yet, right? Have you been longing for peace with those people or have you just, you know, uh, coldly accepted, right? Have you just become numb to the division that is now, that has been between you and that other person for so long? You just become numb to it and accepted it, right? Have you been loving in true acts of love, have, have you been loving your enemies? Have you been praying for those people who, you know, have an issue with you and you just have not been able to build the bridge over it yet, but you're trying to, right? Have you been praying for them? Have you been repenting of the ways that you have been, uh, like I said, continuing to turn down the temperature on that cold relationship or feeding into the animosity, provoking and, and poking into the enmity, enmity that is between you and them? Have you repented of your avoidance? I think we just look at our own personal lives. A lot of us would be really convicted at at how we have not been living as peacemakers. But what if you did? What if you did start to change and live as a peacemaker just in your own life, right? Because we might lament at how bad the church in America or, or, you know, how bad Christians are in America today at doing these things. But look, if we're not living it out at first in our own individual lives, we have no leg to stand upon to complain about the church at large. So let's start to do it in our own lives. And then maybe we'll have a community here. Maybe they'll, you know, in all the mess that there is in, in America and in, 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 in the church, there's, there's a lot of mess and, and so on, right? But maybe we could just have a little pocket here where it's not so much of a mess, right? And where we are starting to live out a community of peacemaking. And then how attractive would that be to the world around us? But sometimes our peacemaking doesn't succeed. Once again, because peacemaking doesn't mean peace achieving. And so let's ask this question, like I said, sort of the elephant in the room. What happens when it is you're taking a stand on the truth that is causing the division? What if you have alienated someone uh, and brought down their, their wrath on you because you have said or done what is right? In that case, are you still a peacemaker? Or what if the reason that there is a division and there's enmity between the church, the true church, and the world is not because we have not been peacemakers, but because we have, we have said and done what is right, we have stood on the truth of God's word, and it's because we have stood on the truth that the world hates us. What then, right? Are we still being peacemakers then? Here's the thing, and we, we've got to think carefully about this. You might be, 
If there's a division between you and someone else that has been uh, impossible to overcome, and that division exists not because, like, you did something sinful, right? Or you were a jerk, but that division exists because you did or said what was right, right? You were being faithful to God and his word, and you made a tough call, right? You said the hard words in love as best you could, right? And that's why the division exists. Is it possible that you're still a peacemaker? It could be, right? Because like I said before, in Romans chapter 12, 18, Paul said, if possible, he said, as long as much as it depends on you, live at peace. Now, the reason I say might is because it might have been because you were a jerk, right? right? It might have been because you mishandled the situation, right? But, so I'm talking about those cases where, no, you did the right thing, you didn't mishandle it, you weren't a jerk, you did, you did or said something you loved, and that and is specifically because of what you did right, that there's division. Here's the second point. Genuine peacemakers might sometimes be the cause of division. Now, I, I know that that seems to be a, contradict, a contradictory statement, but just hang with me here, okay? So that we can, because I think it's important for us to understand this. Genuine peacemakers might sometimes be the cause of division. Here's why. Because even Scripture, like I said, if we zoom out from just this beatitude to look at the context of Scripture in the New Testament, Scripture shows us that there are times when peacemakers, by standing for the truth, will be, be unable to achieve peace. Let me give you a couple of examples. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 18 and 19, Paul writes this to, to the uh, church there. He says, For to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. There are all these divisions going on. And he says this, Indeed, it is necessary that there be factions among you so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. So to under, give you a little bit of context, the church in Corinth that Paul is writing to here was uh, messy, all right? Some of the worst situa- church situations you think you've ever witnessed before probably pales in comparison to what was going on in Corinth during this time. I mean, it, it was dysfunctional. <laughs> to put it one way, to put it lightly, right? And so he says, I hear about all these divisions and things that are going on among you. Now, a lot of them were bad divisions, but he does then say this. He says this in verse 19. He says, but on the other hand, he says, there are some divisions. He says, there are some factions. He says, and those are necessary because it is revealing among you who, uh, who are approved, right? And what he, what he means by that, those who are approved, he means those who are truly following Christ, who are living in submission and obedience to the word of Christ and the, you know, the, the lordship of, of God, right? He's saying those divisions exist so that the approved, those who are living the truth, might be recognized by the division because of the contrast between the factions. You see there? So Paul's saying you've got all these divisions among you. He says some of them are right, okay? Consider Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Jesus said, the same Jesus who said this, par- this, gosh, I keep saying parable, this beatitude. He says, don't assume that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to turn a man against his father and a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. The one who loves his father, more, his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The one, the one who loves a son or a daughter more than me is not wor- worthy of me. 
And whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Anyone who finds his life will lose it. Anyone who loses his life because of me will find it. You see, even Jesus here in Matthew chapter 10, just a little bit later on from what we read in Matthew chapter 5 here, is saying that there will be times because uh, there will be times whenever following him will come with the cost of there being a division between us and other people. And so if we take these, and these are just a couple of examples, we could look at others. But if we take 1 Corinthians, what Jesus says here, and we match it up together with with the command that we ought to be peacemakers, here's the best way that we can put it. You must do acts of love to make peace, but never abandon your allegiance to Jesus, no matter what kind of wrath it brings down upon you. You see, that's the way that we hold these things together. We need to do everything we can, like Paul said, as much as it is possible on our part, to make peace with others, to live at peace with others, to build bridges But in our bridge building and in our peacemaking, we must never compromise our ultimate allegiance to Jesus and to the truth of his word in order to try to soothe some enmity that a person or group might have for us. That's how we hold these things together. Now, practically in our life, as you try to live this out, being a peacemaker but living in a a divided world and living in a world where sometimes being a peacemaker might cause division— How are we supposed to do that, right? It seems like an impossible situation to be placed in. Here's what my encouragement is. Follow the logic of the Beatitudes. Follow the logic of the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes themselves have this certain logic to it that that I've tried to bring up subtly here and there, but but we'll see here. So if you remember, if you've been with us for the series, we actually did the first two Beatitudes together. The first two are blessed are the poor in spirit, and then blessed are those who mourn. And we did those two together in the same sermon. And you know why? Do you remember why, if you were here? Because what we saw was this. Those who are poor in spirit, which, which means those who recognize their own sinfulness, those who recognize their spiritual bank, bankruptcy before God and inability to pay their debt, will then be led to mourn over their moral status, Right? Which is why, so there's this logic there. Blessed are the poor in spirit, and the poor in spirit will be those who mourn over their sinfulness and over the sinful state of the world, right? So there's this logic there that is happening. And you can actually see this working its way throughout all the Beatitudes. Now, we shouldn't try to press too much into it, but we can't see lightly here how there's this logic to it. Being poor in spirit makes you mourn. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness will make you a merciful person. And you know what it will do? It will make you someone who is pure in heart. Right? Wherever you want righteousness in your life, wherever you want to live out and be a more righteous person, then you're going to be the kind of person who is pure in heart, and pure in heart means to love God above all things. So it's obvious that those two things go together. Right? You can almost say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for God above all things. That's what it means to be pure in heart. And being someone who is pure in heart, loving and desiring God above all things, is going to make you someone who's a peacemaker. Right? And then what's the next beatitude? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. So if we follow the logic of the Beatitudes, the poor in spirit, mourning over sin, hungering for righteousness, being pure in heart, which makes you a peacemaker, might sometimes end up in you being persecuted. You see that? So there's this natural logic, but it also teaches us, once again, it teaches us in the logic of the Beatitudes that righteousness cannot be compromised for making peace with the world. The goal of peace 
is subordinated to the goal of righteousness, right? Righteousness, pure in heart, those things come before the peacemaker part. We can also see this in James chapter 3. In James chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, James wrote this. He said, but the wisdom from above is first pure. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without pretense. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. So here, once again, we have these two themes that we see in the Beatitudes of righteousness, purity, and peace as well. But what does James tell us? He says, the wisdom from above does not immediately go to peace. He says, it is first pure, right? And what is sown in righteousness will be peace-loving. He doesn't say, so what, what we learn here from Scripture is that you cannot just pursue or, or aim at peace for peace's sake, but at first what you have to do is aim at the pure righteousness of God, and then by aiming at the righteousness of God, we aim at peace, if that makes sense, right? So once again, there's this logic here that we see in the Beatitudes and across the New Testament, which is that it is first righteousness, and then it is peace. And there are times whenever peace is on the table. Will there be peace between us and the world or not, or will there be division? Will there be enmity between us and the world over belief in X or stance on Y, whatever else it might be? And in those circumstances, we have to, we have to decide, if the wisdom from above is first pure, if it is righteous, and if blessed are those who are hungry and thirst for righteousness comes before peacemaking, then we must do what the logic of the Beatitudes says and what James says here and stand on the truth at the, law, at the cost of the peace. Okay? Does that make sense? This is how we live at peace and we live as peacemakers in a world that is divided and in a world that is still being ravaged by the corruption of sin, right? And by, and by the, our enemy, the devil, who is at work to cause divisions, right? And to try to prevent the world from seeing the truth of the gospel. This is how we do it. So on the one hand, let me say before I move on. So on the one hand, don't, you don't need to start going on crusades, You don't need to start going on purity crusades where you start intentionally uh, bombing bridges between you and other people, especially bridges that never needed to be bombed in the first place, okay? That's a whole other sermon, but there are certain things that that we might disagree with, especially with other believers, that we should just make peace with. Right? Like, it's not the biggest deal, right? We can maintain the bridge between us if we disagree with, uh, with what songs we're singing, okay, or, or, or something else, or some of the finer points of theology, whatever else it might be. So don't start going on crusades because you see, ah, okay, well, peace comes before, I'm sorry, purity comes before peace, right? So don't start going on purity crusades. But on the other hand, don't compromise truth whenever you're put in that situation. Before we close, we really need to see this. We need to see how important it is that you be a peacemaker. Because here's the thing. Peacemaking in practice might be the hardest of all the Beatitudes. As I was thinking about, about this this week, I realized that, that all the Beatitudes are challenging. You know, I told Eli before I preached last week, last Sunday, we were, service was starting, and I was back there, and I just whispered over to him. I said, I don't think there is any other passage of scripture that I've preached on that has been as personally convicting to preach on as the Beatitudes, right? 
You know, any passage of scripture, that I, it, all, it reveals sin in my life as well, but none of them as much as the Beatitudes. There, I have never had to preach a series where I feel so hypocritical as I'm preaching it. <laughs> okay, and I think that peacemaking might be the hardest of them all in practice to really start living out because we've got to overcome some serious internal barriers and baggage like I talked about. How some of us, we aren't even longing. We might be pretending, but we're not longing. Right? And then to actually start doing, in true love, those acts of peacemaking and bridge building. So it, this might be the hardest of all the Beatitudes to live out, but it is absolutely necessary for us to. Here's why. This is the third and final point. It is necessary because of this. Because true children of God evidence themselves by resembling their Father, the God of peace. Jesus says here, the peacemakers will be called sons of God. So here's what that means. If you want to be a child of God, if you want to, if you call yourself a believer, if you want to go to heaven, if you want your sins forgiven, if you want to have a relationship with God, if you want to know Christ Jesus as your Lord, so if you want to be called a son of God, then you must resemble your father by being a peacemaker because God the Father is the God of peace. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19, it says, God was willing in Christ to reconcile the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. You see what that is describing for us here is God being a peacemaker, where there was once the division between him and the world, and him wanting to overcome that division, that separation, and reconcile the world to himself. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, it says, He, being Jesus, made peace. By the blood of the cross. What this highlights for us is how, in, in a sense, the story of the history of the world, the grand story of all of human history, is the story of God making peace with his enemies. It is the story of God building a bridge between himself and the world. It is the story of God loving his enemies in action. How do we see this? How does God love his enemies and how does he build a bridge and how does he reconcile the world which is separated by sinfulness from himself? He does it by this, as Paul says. He does it by the blood of Jesus. You see, God builds a bridge between himself and the world, but it it is not a bridge that he then sits at the end of and waits for us to make our way across. He doesn't build the bridge and say, okay, now run across it, and then there can be peace between us. He doesn't send down a ladder and say, now if you can just climb up the ladder, we'll, we'll be okay. We'll be made peace. There'll be peace between us. Your debt will be paid. No, he builds the bridge, but he crosses the bridge himself. The gap between heaven and earth is not a gap that we must overcome. It is a gap that he has already overcome, a bridge that he has already crossed, where he crossed it in the incarnation of his son, Jesus Christ. God become man, walking on this earth. You see, this this is God crossing that bridge so he can make peace with the world. But then once he had built the bridge and he had crossed it, peace could not be achieved until he had paid the debt for our sin. Because until that debt was paid, how can, how can we who owe that debt have peace with God, right? Until the work is finally done of reconciliation, how can his enemies be made his children? And so instead of us paying the debt with our blood, and instead of us climbing the ladder or walking across the bridge so that we could go from enemies to children, 
Instead, Christ achieves it on our behalf. Whenever he gave his own blood as the payment for our debt, right? Whenever the, the stain of sin that was upon us that held us back from being able to enter into the presence of God, Jesus washes away with his own blood that he shed on the cross. Whenever Jesus on the cross died the death that should have been ours. You see, this was God in Christ, as Paul said, reconciling the world to himself, reconciling you to himself, crossing the bridge that you never could have crossed, dying the death that should have been yours so that we might uh, receive the blessing of the relationship that we didn't deserve. How does God make peace? How is he the God of peace? He is the God of peace because he accomplished peace through the blood of his son. And so if you want to be a peacemaker and if you want to be called a child of God, then it is absolutely necessary that you, that you if you want to be a child of God, it's absolutely necessary that you be a peacemaker because you should be resembling your father. And you know what? That's true of all these beatitudes. Just consider that. The first one, the reward is the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And it says that the morning will be comforted. It says that the humble will inherit the earth. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. The merciful will be shown mercy. The pure in heart, they will see God. The peacemakers, they will be called sons of God. What is that describing? Receiving the kingdom of heaven, inheriting the earth, receiving mercy, seeing God or being called God's child. Do you know what that's describing? That's describing salvation. That is describing what happens to those who lay their life down in submission and obedience and repentance before Jesus Christ as their Lord. Because there is no being called sons of God for those who have not given themselves over to Jesus as their Lord. There is no receiving mercy for those who have not turned away from their sin and then to Christ in obedience. All of these things are absolutely necessary. What they're describing is salvation. They're describing salvation, and then they're describing the kind of life that those who are saved, what, that they have. And so what this means, number, number one, it means transformation is not optional. Some of us have been following or, or claiming to follow Jesus for too long, but not exhibiting any of these characteristics. You should look at your life and say, am I, have I been transformed by what I claim to believe? Am I, am I changing at all? Right? Am I becoming someone who's a peacemaker? Am I becoming more merciful? Am I becoming more humble? Right? Am I being transformed at all? And the number two, what this means, is that there are some of us who still need to submit our lives to Jesus as our Lord and Savior. There are some of us here who, who might be tempted to try to start living th these things out in your own power. You might be trying to be a peacemaker just by your own attractive personality, right? You might be trying to become more and more humble by just beating yourself down because of the, the, the pride that you know you have, right? You might be trying to achieve these things in your own power, but that is not how it works. You don't achieve these things in your own power and then earn the right to be called a son of God. You need to throw your life down before the cross. You need to turn away from your sin. You need to turn away from trying to live your life in your own power, living in your own wisdom, and now giving control of your life over to Jesus and saying, I'm no longer living by my own morality and my own moral power. I'm no longer living by my own wisdom, 
right? And I'm no longer living just according to whatever I desire, but I am now living in obedience to Jesus who laid down his life on my behalf so that my sins could be washed away, so that my debt could be paid, and I could be called a child of God by a free gift of grace. And now I, I joyfully follow him as my Lord, as my king in obedience. There's some of us today who I think probably still need to do that. And so I want to invite you and encourage you to do that today. It is only for those who throw their life down before the cross that they will get to be called sons of God. Don't leave today not being a son of God. Accept that free gift of salvation that there is offered for you in the cross of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you in in the full conviction that comes with with these challenges that we read about in the Beatitudes of being poor in spirit, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, pure in heart, being a peacemaker, Lord. And as we take these and, and like a mirror, we use them to examine our own lives. Father, we see the great gap that exists between the reality of what our lives look like and what this describes. Lord, I pray for those Christians in here who have been who have been striving, who have been working, who have been trying. They, they have been uh, relying on your grace and they have been participating with your spirit in the work of being transformed into looking like someone who lives according to the Beatitudes. And Father, I just pray that you would strengthen them. I pray that you would remove that tendency towards works righteousness in them, that you would remove that tendency in them that tries to do these things in their own power, and that they would just continue instead rejoicing in the grace of the gospel and relying upon the power of the Spirit to see this transformation worked out in their life. Father, and for those in here who who are not yet a son of God because they have not fully given their life over to you yet. Lord, maybe they have they have just been trying to be a son of God through doing good things. Maybe they have been trying to be a peacemaker or pure in heart or whatever else in their own power. Lord, maybe they have been told that it is through their church attendance and it is through their doing the right things and it is through just being a good person that they be made a son of God. Father, but for whatever reason it might be, if there are any in here yet who have not yet fully committed their life over to you in repentance, turning away from their sin and receiving the gift of your grace, receiving the gift of free salvation in Jesus Christ, then Lord, would you bring them to the foot of your cross this morning? their heart with your loving kindness. Show them the infinite uh, love that you have for them, that you proved for them on the cross. Show them how much you adore them and how much you desire their heart and their life being to give, uh, given over to you. So they might be able to joyfully lay down everything at the cross and follow you. Father, we pray this, these things in the name of your Son, our Savior. Amen.